Community Radio. It's about real people. Not sound bites. Not more talking heads. Not on this show. Interchange is a community access media forum fostering unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Conversations that challenge the ways we perceive the world around us. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Interchange. I'm Doug Storm, and with me tonight to co-host is Trish Curley. Happy to be here, Doug. Our guest tonight is Jim Madison, who's the Thomas and Catherine Miller Professor of History Emeritus at Indiana University here in Bloomington. He began teaching Indiana history nearly 40 years ago and is the author of a new book on the subject, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Doug. We uh, introduced the show tonight by playing the state song on the banks of the Wabash, Far Away, which was written by Terre Haute native Paul Dresser. It was first published in July 1897, and the song was adopted as the official state song on March 14, 1913, by the Indiana General Assembly. The state song is the oldest of Indiana's state emblems, being adopted four years before the state flag. Uh, Paul Dresser was the author of An American Tragedy, which was made into the movie A Place in the Sun in 1951, which starred Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. Actually, Theodore Dreiser was the I author. hate to be a picky historian. <laughs> oh, I'm so <laughs> sorry. You're right, absolutely right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes, okay. Um, so uh, anyway, Jim... Uh, uh, We've got a big topic ahead of us tonight, one that starts in the Ice Age with the Wisconsin Glacier 20 years ago, excuse me, 20,000 years ago, and moves through time to the present. Uh, you are the, uh, the foremost historian of Indiana, and uh, you're with us tonight to offer us a slice of what you call an adult history of the state. Uh, we'll have to abandon comprehensiveness uh, and ask you to shine a light on the deepest wells of the state's past, those in which the springs still feed the currents of our present moment. But first, let's get this out of the way, Jim. I'm sure folks want to know, what is the origin of the word Hoosier? The answer, short answer is we don't know. <laughs> I love that, the fact that we don't know, that it's a mystery. Uh, in fact, in the first uh, page and two of the book, I, try, I, I, I trot out the answers that have been proposed for more than 100 years. Actually, the first recorded, written use of the word Hoosier comes in the 1830s in a letter. So it's been around for a long, long time. And it's amazing to me, I think wonderful, that we don't know where it comes from and what it means. That's pretty funny. Uh, what are the, some of the guesses for the... Uh... Oh, well, James Whitcomb Riley had the best story. There was a barroom brawl in a log cabin and a sawdust floor, and after it was all over, the eye gouging and the hair pulling and the biting. You're laughing because you know the story. <laughs> uh, someone reached down under the sawdust floor and picked up a mangled piece of flesh and said, Whose ear? <laughs> <laughs> that was Riley, who had a wicked sense of humor, actually. Yes. Um, well, uh, you know, one of the um, the thing that's interesting about the, the Hoosier itself is that it seems that people uh, really do claim it as an identity in the state. And uh, it sort of begs the question, what is it they're claiming? If we don't know where a Hoosier comes from, what is a Hoosier? What's the Hoosier identity? There again, I wish I had a snappy short answer. Uh, but the first point is one that I think requires reiteration and emphasis, that the people of Indiana do identify with a title, with a name, with a sense of community in a certain way that is unusual. There are very few other states that have a brand identity 
that Indiana does. I think it's an asset, and I think it's a great asset that we ought to uh, we ought to feature. We ought to be proud to call ourselves Hoosiers. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we're better than other states. Well, we're better than Texans. I'm sure of that. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it's it's a wonderful identity, and uh, what it means is much more difficult. Uh, but some of the stereotypical responses to that question may well be valid. That is friendly, kind, uh, the kind of people who go a little slower and take a little more time to smell the new mown hay, to think about candles on the Wabash and all these other kind of romantic and maybe even silly notions that we sometimes have that nonetheless, I think, have some kind of reality in the culture of Indiana. Well, it's an interesting thing to think about being, I, I, I'll, I'll confess, I'm not from Indiana, I'm from Illinois, and I wouldn't know what a Hoosier was other than it being the, the, the Indiana, uh, you know, mascot or the, the name of the basketball team in particular, where, where I come from, it was the Indiana Hoosiers that you cared about, but never have an answer to the question, what's a Hoosier? David Letterman making jokes about the Hoosiers all the right. time, being a Hoosier himself. And, um, but there was nothing else I actually thought about Indiana usually. Um, and I'm, I don't know that we do this generally about states um, uh, I don't know what I think about being an Illinoisan, other than we can talk about Abe Lincoln at some point, I suppose, and, and sharing that. But you gotta, you gotta admit that Abe Lincoln is also a Hoosier, and uh, I think that we need to stand up to anyone from Illinois or Kentucky <laughs> who claims otherwise. He grew up in Indiana. He had his formative years here. Um, I'm all about being a little more assertive about this identity. Mm. That's not the same as Hoosier pride or covering over the. Uh, the aspects, the unseemly aspects of Indiana's past or present. It's it's a realistic view, but it can include uh, a profession of pride in being a Hoosier. You know, Doug and I were considering a few different titles for this for this program, and uh, if you had to choose a bumper sticker length phrase to describe the history of the state, and I know it's more complex than that, but I'm wondering if the one you coined in the book is actually the one which would be to describe it as evolution, not revolution. How accurate is that? I still think that's accurate. That was a theme I laid out many years ago in an earlier book, and I thought a lot about the ways in which it might have changed. Things are different, uh, in some cases very different in the last 30 years in this state and in this nation and in this world. But I think Indiana, the people of Indiana, more than most, tend to favor evolutionary change, tend to want to go a little more slowly, a little more carefully, tend to want to stay away from the rocky edges of the river and stay in the middle and a little bit to the right side of the river rather than mounting the barricades and proclaiming a revolution. No one in Indiana has ever gotten away with a revolution. You know, Doug referenced this in the opening remarks, and so I do want to ask you more about what you mean when you say that you've written an adult history of Indiana. Well, part of the context is that I've also written, and coming out in a few weeks, a uh, high school history for kids. Uh, and the books might get confused, but uh, they ought not, in my opinion. Uh, this is a book for adults, but more seriously, for people who are willing and able to see contradictions and ironies and ambiguities and who are willing to read and think beyond the bumper sticker kind of way toward, uh, toward a more complex, a more nuanced understanding of Indiana and of history in general. Um, that means that there are lots of subjects or my perspective and conclusion on lots of subjects that won't make people feel all that happy. Some of us want history to comfort us they want happy stories. They want sunshine and blue skies as the way we were once back in the good old days. Well, there was always sunshine and blue skies at times, but there's also a lot more and a lot more interesting um, stories, subjects, and perspectives than just those that give us comfort and make us feel good. There are parts of my book that are not gonna make a reader feel all that good, but and I hope will cause a reader to think. And is that true in the high school version as well? It's less true in the high school version, yeah, to be honest. Uh, I tried not to, I have a co-author, Leanne Sandweiss, of the high school version. We, we tried not to paper over 
uh, issues of controversy, but we're mindful that 16-year-olds are prepared for some things, but 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, adults are prepared because of life experiences for, I think, a deeper understanding. Can you give us an example of something that you struggled with in terms of whether you should leave it in or leave it out of the high school version? Sure. Uh, I write a lot in both books about race. I, uh, I've been very interested in African-American history for a very long time. I wrote a book about a lynching in Indiana several years ago. Uh, it's not surprising to me, and I think any serious historian would, in a, in a book like this, uh, write a great deal about African-American history. And as soon as you get into the areas of race and the differences between white and black Hoosiers, and the way particularly in which white Hoosiers treated African-American Hoosiers from the very beginning down to the present in some instances, you get into troubled and discomforting subjects. So I write about race in the high school history book. We wrote a fair bit about race. There are a lot of images, a lot of uh, text, stories that have to do with African-American Hoosiers, and some of them are very discomforting. When it came, however, to the subject of lynching, I did not write about lynching as much as as boldly for 16-year-olds as I as I did in the large book for adults. But you did talk about it to But some I did extent. talk about it. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. The uh, just an example, the um, the famous photograph of that Marion lynching, there are two African-American teenagers hanging from a tree, 1930. It's the most famous lynching photograph in all of American history. That photograph is not in the high school book. Now, I have mixed feelings about that. Smart kids will find it online immediately anyhow, but uh, I decided we, didn't, we weren't going to put that photograph in the book. This is your second book about Indiana history in general. The, you wrote The Indiana Way nearly 30 years ago. And in the introduction to this newest book, Hoosiers, you say that you didn't want to just update your original book on Indiana history. Would you elaborate a bit on why you chose to write this new book of Indiana and what's new in this latest book that you didn't cover in the first book? That's a large question. Uh, I started out actually thinking I'd just update the Indiana Way, which is nearly 30 years old. Update it by adding two or three chapters at the end, which would cover the period from the 1960s and 70s down to the 21st century. And in fact, I sat down for almost five years ago and wrote a draft of those first those last chapters covering the most recent years. Um, I decided then that I'd probably go ahead and do this book. Those, those drafts went well enough that I decided I'd actually write a new book. And rather than tinker, however, with the original Indiana Way, it came apparent early on that so much had changed that I really needed to rewrite chapter after chapter after chapter. The changes included new scholarship. I was astonished at some areas, traditional subjects like William Henry Harris and the territorial governor and his relationship with Native Americans, Tecumseh in particular. There have been lots of new books and articles on that in the last 20, 30 years that enabled me to write much more, to write from different perspectives, to write, I think, in a more interesting way about Harris and Tecumseh and those issues. That's just one example of many, many areas in which new scholarship has allowed me to tell a broader, deeper, and I think more interesting story. Let me jump in right there, uh, Jim, because it actually uh, goes well with, um, we're trying to set up for the rest of the show as well, and there, uh, the history of Indiana at that point, William Henry Harrison, and even before that, in terms of trying to understand migration from the east and from the south into the state, and you make, a, uh, I think, a fairly, uh, you take a, a fair amount of time trying to help us understand where people come from yeah. when they come to Indiana, and the, and the fact that it's obviously a peopled place in the first first instance. There are Native Americans here, and there's a history of how uh, we, or Indianans, dealt with, or I guess they weren't even Indianans at the time, right? So how we deal with uh, that history with William Henry Harrison and the, the migration to Indiana and how that affects the different types of people throughout the, the state. Yes, that's a huge subject, Doug, and a very, very important subject. Let me try to be brief. Uh, first of all, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that Everyone who came to Indiana, everyone who lived in Indiana at any point in time was an immigrant. 
The Native Americans that we know, the Miami, the Potawatomi, the others, were all immigrants to Indiana. They're no native-born uh, in the sense of, of uh, the traditional definition. When we come to the Euro-Americans, uh, they are certainly coming from outside the state, initially from the Upland South, in smaller numbers from the Mid-Atlantic and New England. And I write at some length about those different streams of migration where they come from means the kind of cultural baggage they bring with them in terms of their religion, their politics, the way they build corn cribs, how they name their children, and on and on and on. So the people of Indiana are composed of different streams of migration with different cultural baggage coming at different times, and it's that migration and that mix of people that makes this new people that we call Hoosiers. Can you detail quickly uh, the sense of what those were, those those particular streams and where they went? And I think at some point you say in the book that the center of the, the state, which I suppose makes some sense, uh, sort of has a mixture of, of these groups in, yeah. and becoming maybe the truer Hoosiers or the most most real Hoosiers, I suppose. Yeah. I hate to choose someone <laughs> as the most real Hoosier, but... It's you in the room. But, uh, yeah. yeah. The... Uh, the earliest stream is the stream from the upland south. These are not these are not the plantation aristocrats. These are not the people with mint juleps on the cool verandas. These are poor farmers or middle middling farmers. Uh, they did not own slaves. They come from the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, from North Carolina, from Tennessee, Kentucky, across the Ohio River. And they're the first people to come here at the very beginning of the 19th century, actually in the 1790s and then in the early 1800s, these upland southerners, and they settle in southern Indiana. And I don't need to tell any of our listeners who, who know the place in which we live, southern Indiana, that this is a distinctive place down to the 21st century. Just the language, the speech, the patterns, the accents are distinctive, and they reflect two centuries now of upland south migration and residence in southern Indiana. So Indiana fills up like a glass of water from the bottom to the top. The upland south folks arriving early on in the southern third of the state or so, and then into central Indiana mixing with mid-Atlantic and New Englanders and then northern Indiana last. And you're correct, Doug, I do argue and I believe that it's central Indiana where the most mixing occurs that really begins to set the tone for the Indiana culture, for the Hoosier culture. But that south, that upland south culture, those people remain very, very important. They're critically important in the Civil War, for example. Think of the counterfactual possibility that Indiana might have been a southern state and might have joined the Confederacy rather than the Union. Those Upland South people are very important in that. This is an interesting area in particular with William Henry Harrison as well, who is, or at least you portray him, and that what I know of him comes from your book, uh, a Virginian uh, a gentry, landed gentry, yes. arist aristocratic, slaveholder, right. um, and in the rest of that that area being, as you say, again, working working class, or uh, what's we, that's of course an anachronism, but um, the idea that there's a little class issue going on here as well, maybe more than a little, it's a, a very, very real class issue here too. These are not farmers who own slaves and don't want to own slaves. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And the battle over slavery in that period before Indiana became a state in the territorial period with William Henry Harris and the aristocratic slave-owning Virginian on one side and these upland south non-slave-holding folks on the other side. That battle that difference is one of the fundamental and to me most interesting stories in all of Indiana history. And we're going to talk about that when we go back, come back. We've got to take a break right now. We're speaking with historian James Madison about his new book on Indiana history, which will celebrate the bicentennial founding in 2016. When we come back from the break, we'll cover some of the territory of Indiana's history and its relationship with African Americans. Back in a, back in a minute. WFHB comes from Jerseyana Gallery in Nashville. More, more information is available at 812 200 
Jerseyana Gallery upstairs at the Possum Trot Square near the Nashville Fudge Kitchen. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm with my co-host for this program, Trish Curley, and we're speaking with James Jim Madison about the evolution of Indiana history since the founding of the state nearly 200 years ago. Madison's other books include Eli Lilly, A Life, 1885 to 1977, uh, Slinging Donuts for the Boys, An American Woman in, the World, in World War II, and the Indiana Way, a state history, and a lynching in the heartland, race and memory in America. Before the break, we started to talk about the three migration patterns into Indiana and that a majority of its new residents in the early to mid-1800s were poor whites from the upland south, Kentucky and Tennessee. Because they were poor and worked on family farms, they were neither land nor slave owners. In your introduction to the book, Jim, you say that African Americans have a larger presence in this book than they did in your 1986 book on Indiana history. So let's focus on some of that history. Indiana was officially an anti-slave state, but it was also considered the most southern of the northern states. There seemed to be a deep internal struggle around the issue. Uh, describe for us, please, Jim, the culture of Indiana and what was going on in the 19th century up through the Civil War in relation to the state's positioning around slavery. Yes, well, it's a, it's a very interesting subject, and I do write a lot about it because I find it so interesting and so very important. It's foundational. There were slave owners in early Indiana, not just William Henry Harrison, but others. The 1820 census counted a couple of hundred slaves, probably more, hidden. However, the tendency, the majority of folks, as you say, Doug, uh, upland southerners, non-slave owning, as well as folks from other parts of the East, were opposed to slavery and were able to defeat the slave faction, the slavery faction, and in the 1816 Constitution, Indiana's first constitution, constitution, to really put a nail in the coffin of slavery so that slavery is dead in 1816, officially dead, constitutionally dead. But the issue of race is not dead. Folks who were opposed to slavery were not in favor of equality across the racial lines. In fact, quite the contrary. Many upland southerners, and also some folks, quite a few, from the mid-Atlantic and New England states, had notions about race that emphasized inequality, that considered African Americans second-class people at best. And so early on, the state of Indiana begins to pass laws that discriminate against African Americans. They may not serve in juries. They may not uh, vote. The 1816 Constitution was a very democratic constitution, but it gave the right to vote only to white men. No women, of course, and no black voters. There are all kinds of pieces of legislation passed in the period before the Civil War that restrict the rights of African-Americans, the civil rights of African-Americans, including the right to marry, um, and then culminating in 1851 when a new constitution contains a horrible provision, uh, the 13th Amendment, that says in so many words, we're going to build a wall around Indiana and keep out all African-Americans. No 
African-American may enter the state of Indiana according to the 1851 Constitution. All those living in the state must go to their county courthouse and register and prove that they came before 1851 and that they have a right to be here. Now, it's important to note that that Article 13 was never adequately enforced. It was impossible to enforce. So African-Americans continued to come across the Ohio River and into Indiana. But the sentiment behind it, the, there's no other word for it, the racist sentiment behind it is deep in Indiana's culture in the 1850s. It is, there, it is, go ahead. Go ahead I'm sorry, Trish. Doug. That's right. Were there other states that had those There were other of, states. Uh, Illinois, Illinois uh, Doug's state, I'm sorry to say, also <laughs> has a similar provision. Ohio has some. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Indiana's not alone, but Indiana is certainly uh, in, in the forefront of this. Yeah. Well, it, it does strike, strike one as, as being um, a difficult thing to, to, to understand the, the, the so, somewhat in a, like the inability to imagine that you could, as you say, build a wall around people coming in and going at the, at the time. Is, was that, a, a, as you say, not being able to actually enforce that, but were there uh, people on the ground, you know, cities or towns and, and people that were truly working in a, even in a, in a sort of... Um, 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 forceful sense or a violent sense to keep out uh, African Americans? It usually wasn't that strong, but what it was was a tradition of separation, exclusion, and uh, you probably know the term sunset towns. Uh, there were many places in Indiana where African Americans knew they were not welcome and almost inevitably where they would be treated in a very discriminatory kind of way. Um, so it was the culture, the climate not the law, not the Constitution that really restricted. The other point I should note here is that this is the time when slavery is at the center of the national agenda and of the Indiana agenda. And this is a time when abolitionists in Indiana as well as elsewhere are arguing for the end of slavery. This is the time when slaves are escaping. We all know Uncle Tom's Cabin. Where are they escaping to? Well, they're crossing the Ohio River from Kentucky and other places to freedom in Indiana. So white Hoosiers are very concerned, and the language here, and I quote it in the book, is horrible, that we're going to be overrun mm -hmm. by these ignorant blah, blah, blah people. So Article 13 comes out of that sense, as does other restrictions against African Americans in the 1850s. And it sounds a lot like what we hear about the, the U.S.-Mexican border. Uh, you said it. I think you're probably right. <laughs> tell, tell us what you mean by sunset towns. Sunset towns are places where the custom was that white folks lived here happily, and we didn't want any other kind of people living here. And you better be out of town if you're passing through or doing a job. You better be out of town before the sun sets. Mm. And those those lasted a long time, weren't those there signs? Lasted, those lasted. Well, there may have been some signs, but these are small towns. They don't have the time or the money to make signs. They just mm -hmm. they just everyone knows. Uh, African Americans know. One of my favorite sources. This gets us into the 20th century. But uh, someone, a publishing company, published a book in the 1930s into the and it listed in the 40s and 50s, uh, a Negro motorist handbook. It's online, and you can look up the Indiana section where it tells you which places an African-American family traveling in Indiana could stop to get gas, use a restroom, or find a restaurant. You needed, as late as the 1940s, to know, mm -hmm. if you were black, where you could have those kinds of services. That's a sunset town kind of phenomenon as well. We opened this segment with the 1939 Billie Holiday classic, Strange Fruit. This song was first a poem called Bitter Fruit, written by a Jewish teacher, Abel Mirapol, and was published in 1937 in a teacher's union magazine that was inspired by a photograph he had seen of a lynching in 1930 of African-Americans Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith in Marion, Indiana. There were three Ku Klux Klan periods in, in U.S. history. The first was, not surprisingly, post-Civil War in the South. It was not in the North. It was led by Confederate veterans. Um, their intention was to deny freedom to former slaves and to end Northern Reconstruction in the South. Second period of KKK uh, engagement was in the 1920s in Indiana. 
And the third was in the 1960s, in opposition to the African-American Civil Rights Movement. So we're obviously going to talk about the Indiana Klan of the 1920s. The Indiana Klan, according to your book, was not a fringe group. It was estimated that one quarter of the state's American-born white men were members, along with thousands of women. So what were the circumstances that led to the development of an Indiana Klan in the 1920s? The Indiana Klan is very important. I spend most of a chapter writing about it and trying to sort it out. And I can do that so much better than I might have than I did 30 years ago because there's a lot of new scholarship. New books and articles that have studied membership lists and parades and documents and all sorts of issues. So we know a great deal more about the Klan. What we know is that this was not an organization of... uh, of 'er ne'er-do-wells. These were not rednecks or other kinds of uh, stereotypical labels applied to the the stereotypical Klan. The people who joined the Klan came from the Protestant churches, all of them. They were Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians. Ministers joined the Klan. Lawyers joined the Klan in Indiana. Rotary Club members joined the Klan in Indiana. Shopkeepers joined the Klan in Indiana. Not poor, unwashed, middle-class, God-fearing, patriotic. Mainstream. Mainstream, exactly. So we now know that from the study of membership lists and other sources. That really makes it more difficult to explain what they were about. In short, they're about two things. They're about God, their Christian God, their Protestant Christian God, and they're about patriotism. So the Klan's parades and rallies always feature the flag and the cross. Those are the symbols, the iconic meaning of the Klan. It's their particular interpretation of what is wrong with America that causes them to raise that cross and raise that flag. They believe that America is in decline. It's in decline because of uh, alcohol, violation of prohibition. It's in decline because of hot music, this music that is full of sexual uh, innuendo, played by such radical musicians as, are you ready, Hoagie Carmichael, who just infuriated uh, traditional patriotic God-fearing Hoosiers of the 1920s. But the chief enemy of the Klan is the Catholic Church and Catholics. And this is very difficult to explain today because we've lost most of that anti-Catholicism in America. Some folks remember the 1960 election when John Kennedy suffered because of his Catholic religion. In the 1920s, fear of Catholics and fear of what they were doing to tear down America was the primary concern of the Ku Klux Klan. They're concerned about Jews. They're concerned about African Americans. But those aren't the main enemies. The main enemy is the Klan. So I want to add one point, Trish, to this. Um, Billie Holiday is absolutely right about Southern fruit. And the lynchings in the South are a horrible blot on the history of the South and of America. But what her song does not reveal is that there were lynchings in the Midwest and in the West, in California, in Wisconsin, in Oregon, and certainly in Indiana. Um, The lynching that I wrote about in, that occurred in Marion in 1930 is not a Klan lynching. It's a horrible lynching. It's a tragedy that resulted in the death of two innocent teenagers. Innocent because they never had a trial, were never proven guilty of any crime. But it was not the Klan that lynched Smith and Ship. The Klan was dead by, the 19, by 1930. The Klan has not, in the 1920s, the Klan did not lynch anyone black, white, or otherwise. That's a contradiction of the stereotypes and a lot of the stuff you hear around Indiana. There's a lot lot in there that's contradictory, as you say. You you mentioned Hoagie Carmichael. Hoagie Carmichael 
writes and sings several songs that you would you would easily call racist on their face, sure. La- Lazy Bones, Snowball. Mm-hmm. Um, so to imagine the Klan not liking Hoagy Carmichael is is to imagine not listening very well or not understanding the the, the lyrics or understanding Hoagy Carmichael being something that he might not have been or projecting yeah. a particular perspective. Well, it wasn't the racial issue, Doug. It was the fact that that kind of music caused young people to go out to roadhouses and dance mm. halls and, and juke joints and to, to drink and to dance and to engage in all kinds of who knows what that mm. really upset the Klan. Because wasn't, wasn't the Klan first... Um, uh, focused on the anti-saloon movement. It's a very, very, very closely, beginning? very closely connected to the anti-saloon movement, and very deep into prohibition. Clan members would uh, engage in vigilante kinds of activities. They'd station themselves along a road leading to a dance hall, and they'd pull over cars with no official. Uh, authority to do so and check for alcohol and check for young girls out who should not be out at night and on and on and on trying to enforce their moral view of the world onto others it's a little confusing so uh, help me a little bit with it so uh, alcohol being the gateway drug at the in that <laughs> sense uh, yeah, is that sure, where we're going sure, with that exactly and to then what what we might call loose m- morals is 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 really yes. the issue then is sexu- sexuality among yes. among their, their t- okay and it's sexuality among among women especially mm-hmm, mm-hmm. boys had always been bad boys right. always get to sow their wild oats right though not all traditionalists would argue that was the right thing, but it's women. Mm-hmm. This is, this, the image of this is the flapper. Mm-hmm. And there are flappers in Indiana, but it's not just flappers. It's women who are beginning to break out of traditional ways, young women who are not happy to be down on the farm or even in the town and the city without the kinds of uh, new pleasures and new opportunities that are bursting in the 1920s. Is this where there's a a little bit of the, again, the racism and the fear of the the black male influence in that space? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because this music, including Hoagie's music, comes out of African-American culture. It's that kind of music, jungle music, as it was called in the press at the time, that um, is one of the sources of this uh, loose morals. Let's talk about uh, Hoagie a little bit, but I want to actually pivot to talking about Jeanette Recording Studio because I didn't, we were very surprised. We had done a a program uh, on Hoagie almost a year ago, Mm -hmm. Doug and I, and one of the things that didn't come up through the research that we did was the fact that the Klan, according to your book, produced sheet music and recorded music yes. at Jeanette Recording Studio, which is in Richmond, which was in Richmond, Indiana, and yes. it was a, a very important recording studio, particularly for jazz musicians of that period, including Hoagy Carmichael, including African American uh, musicians, including folks like Louis Armstrong. I believe he was he did, he did his he first did record recording there. at Jeanette a Recording Studio. A very young Louis Armstrong right. records a very early record at the studio in Richmond, Indiana. I love that. And I was interested to read that the owners of Jeanette Recording Studio were Italian Americans, or they had they they were originally from Italy and they became Italian Americans, and that they did not they wanted to obviously make the money that the Klan would offer through their recordings, uh, but they didn't want to claim that they were uh, had anything to do with those recordings, and so they they didn't. There's nothing on the albums themselves that say Jeanette Recording Studio. Yeah, it was Indiana, a business. On the Klan, it on was the a Klan business. Record. And we'll yeah. take your money. Right. Uh, the, the other important point there, Trish, I think, is that you you might think if you you might assume that the Klan is a backward, ignorant organization. I've already said the membership shows otherwise, but the fact that they're actually making records, recordings as part of their propaganda, as part of their PR shows that this is a very sophisticated organization in so many ways, including these records made in Richmond, Indiana. And sheet music. And, and sheet films. Music. And films. That's and, right. Well, I was just going to say, as as we were talking about these things, that they they just strike me as club events. To, like like um, you mentioned Rotary, mm-hmm. and you have uh, um, Kiwanis, and you know all these types of clubs that that show up in in this period as well, right? That, That's right. And it's it seems like one of those clubs almost. Yeah. It's very for many members. It has that function. It provides a social place to gather with like-minded people. And the clan has picnics and parades and all kinds of 
of fun activities. So yes, it provides that social function, that sense of belonging, that us and them sort of thing. We've got to take a break. Uh, We'll continue our conversation with Indiana history expert Jim Madison. Back in a minute. Support for WFHB comes from Patrick Signe Art Design Direction and Design, servicing the community's graphic arts needs for 20 years. Patrick Signe offers traditional illustration and marketing with a focus on digital design. Patrick Signe Art Direction and Design is located at 1303 South Stoll Avenue, where you can be reached on the phone at 334-0019. Welcome back to our conversation with Jim Madison about his book, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana, which is the second book he has written about the Hoosier State. Madison serves on the boards of Indiana Humanities and the Indiana Historical Society and is a member of the Indiana Bicentennial Commission, which is coming up in 2016. Uh, we stopped uh, the last segment talking about the Klan in the, primarily in the 20s, and, and Jim, you wanted to say something a little bit about the Klan in the 60s. Well, I did, because there's a, a wide... I believe, misperception about Indiana and the Klan. There's no question about the Klan's strength in Indiana in the 1920s. After World War II, it's a different ball game. The Klan of the 19, that appears in Indiana in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s is a small, small remnant of mostly people who I've always thought ought to be pitied more than feared. It's true that they did some nasty things, but there are a very, very small number of people who do not represent anything close to the mainstream of Indiana. So when people call Indiana a Klan state or called Indiana a Klan state in, let's say, 1970 because a few idiots put on sheets and marched uh, here or there, Um, It's a misperception of the Klan and of Indiana in this recent period. Okay, thanks. Uh, we're going to take a, we're going to do a little bit of a sidestep here and talk about uh, the f- the where Indiana moves in its Indi- industrial future as well. So we're going to take a clip right now from Orson Welles' Magnificent Ambersons. So your devilish machines are going to ruin all your old friends, eh, Gene? Do you really think they're going to change the face of the land? They're already doing it, Major. It can't be stopped. Automobiles, Automobiles are a useless nuisance. What did you say, George? I said automobiles are a useless nuisance. Never amount to anything but a nuisance. And they had no business to be invented. Of course, you forget Mr. Morgan makes them. Also, did he share in inventing them? If he weren't so thoughtless, he might think you rather offensive. I'm not sure George is wrong about automobiles. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in civilization. Maybe that they won't add to the beauty of the world or the life of men's souls. I'm not sure. But automobiles have come. And almost all outward things are going to be different because of what they bring. They're going to alter war and they're going to alter peace. I think men's minds are going to be changed in subtle ways because of automobiles. And it may be that George is right. Maybe that in 10 or 20 years from now, if we can see the inward change in men by that time, I shouldn't be able to defend the gasoline engine, but would have to agree with George that automobiles had no business to be invented. 
That was a famous scene from the Orson Welles movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, which was based on the novel of the same name by Indiana native son Booth Tarkington. By the early 20th century, the number of best-selling books by Indiana authors I was very surprised to hear this, exceeded that of any other state except New York State. So, Jim, tell us more about the novelists Booth Tarkington and Theodore Dreiser, who I referenced earlier, and the poet James Whitcomb Riley. What kind of work did they produce, and, and how did they personify a Hoosier identity? Well, all of these and some other writers are often referred to as the golden age of Indiana literature. And there was a period from the 1880s into the 1920s where, as you say, Indiana produced an unusually large number of best-selling authors. There's variety and diversity. On one extreme, Theodore Dreiser, who does not fit quite with the others. The others, the majority, best represented by Booth Tarkington, tend to look backward tend to be concerned about all the changes going on around them. And those changes are, as the textbooks call them, urbanization, industrialization. So cities are growing, factories are appearing, and all kinds of social and cultural consequences of change result that cause Booth Tarkington, James Whitcomb Riley, and many others to be concerned. For Riley, it's moving backward and thinking about new mown hay and uh, Candlelight on the Wabash, as the state song has it, uh, Little Orphan Andy, and Down by the Swimming Hole, and all the other poems that were so popular from, were out from James Goodcomb Riley. Uh, Tarkington's uh, willing to consider more directly what's happening all around him, but he's very, very uncertain about it, as that clip just showed. Even the inventor of the automobile, well, not the inventor, the automobile manufacturer, Eugene Morgan, is not sure that it's a good thing. Georgie, however, who says automobiles are a nuisance, represents the kind of traditional Hoosier who is very anxious about any kind of change, any newfangled invention, any new way of doing things. It ought not to be invented. And he's the youngest man in the room, Georgie. He's, the, he's a kid, yeah. He's yeah. a smart alley kid who knows everything. Of course, he gets his comeuppance in the end. <laughs> I don't want to say much because if, if our listeners haven't had a chance to read The Magnificent Ambersons or read it in a while, I believe it's still worth reading. And that Orson Welles film is definitely worth watching, one of the great films of all time. It's interesting that the car there is revolution in your in your terms of evolution versus revolution. Yeah. The car, the car forces revolution on most of us, or at least at that period, right? So, while uh, we're facing, or, or that 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 time, Indiana is facing uh, transition, just like the rest of the country, from uh, a primarily rural farm state to uh, what becomes a kind of mecca of manufacturing and of labor union membership in the U.S. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, Indiana. Uh, is full of tinkerers, <laughs> mostly young men, uh, at the end of the 19th century in their garages and backyards tinkering with things, with bicycles, with farm implements. And some of them start to tinker with gasoline engines and with horseless carriages. The best known is Elwood Haynes in Kokomo, who eventually becomes a major auto manufacturer based in Kokomo. Others appear. And so Indiana becomes a leading automobile manufacturing state and is so down to the present. The rankings put Indiana second or third behind Michigan, sometimes behind Ohio. But for more than 100 years, Indiana has been one of the top three manufacturing, automobile manufacturing states in the nation. That, and I use, I use automobiles for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is because of the kind of George... Amberson notion of cultural change and resistance to it, uh, also because of their centrality in the economy. I use automobiles to frame uh, one of the big chapters in the last part of this book on the economic changes of the 20 and 21st century. Well, the, um, the what strikes me as interesting too in this particular situation, as as we are experiencing now, uh, as you say, a shift in something happening in Indiana in terms of labor, labor rights, labor unions. Uh, at the beginning of the century, it was a bastion for labor unions, and uh, I, I don't know what the latest numbers are for union membership now, but they're tiny. Uh, in comparison to what they were even back in in 1905, 1907 is uh, 19,000. 
members for the United Mine Workers. Yes. Yeah. So what's what's happened in the state? Well, uh, there, there was a big up and a big down, <laughs> in short. Uh, the big up is quite fascinating. I write a lot about it. That is the growth of labor unions, and particularly their coming of age in the 1930s. And again, it's in many different industries, in many different trades, but the most interesting to me is in the automobile industry where the UAW, United Auto Workers, form one of the earliest locals in South Bend, Indiana, at Bendix and then at Studebaker, and then in General Motors plants across the state, the UAW becomes in Indiana a major union, providing for its members uh, immense benefits in terms of pay, vacations, health care, and on and on. So that by the 1950s, in this booming economy, UAW workers in Indiana, in places like Anderson and Kokomo and Newcastle, are able to provide college educations for their kids. They, have, they live in homes with two-car garages and on and on and on. That is a large consequence, not entirely, but a significant consequence of those union leaders and members who developed in the 1930s in the UAW. Now, we know that's not the way it is now. The UAW is a pale imitation of what it was. Unions are a pale imitation of what they were. Um, uh, some of that is a consequence of a lot of it, of, of immense global economic changes, and we can talk about that, of course. And some of it is a consequence of political will and the majority vote in the General Assembly, which passed a few years ago a right-to-work law that makes it very difficult for labor unions in Indiana. You know, into the 21st century, so uh, foreign investment, Japanese car companies, for example, has reinforced the state of Indiana as a manufacturing mecca. Why is Indiana so successful in attracting foreign investment? Well, Indiana uh, was blessed, uh, if you think this foreign investment is good, and I tend to think it is, uh, we had a pretty good governor in the 1980s, Robert Orr, and a really good lieutenant governor, John Mutz. And I had a wonderful interview with John Mutz when I was working on this book, who helped me understand all of this. But they were convinced that Indiana needed foreign investment, and they made many trips to Japan. They sat in offices in Japan, and they drank green tea, and they exchanged gifts, and they went through all the formalities and worked very hard to attract Japanese investment. The first success was the Subaru factory just south of Lafayette. And later on, the, the uh, Toyota factory in Princeton in Gibson County, and then the Honda factory in Greensburg. Those are immense achievements. They provide large numbers of jobs, good jobs, uh, they contribute to economic growth and to Indiana's economy. There are other smaller factories, smaller plants across the state uh, that represent a continuation of that foreign investment. What are the downsizes to being so focused on manufacturing, to well, the exclusion of other areas of business? That's, that's a very important question, Trish. Um, Indiana is more focused on manufacturing than just about any other state. We have too many eggs, some say, too many of our eggs in the manufacturing basket and not enough of our eggs in other baskets, in the service industries, in the high-tech industries, in the knowledge industries. Um, that's part of what I believe is a fundamental issue still facing the state. There are lots of Hoosiers who grew up knowing that there was always going to be a job down at the GM factory or down at the plant. Their dad worked there, their granddad worked there, they were going to work there, and their children worked there, and they'd be good-paying jobs. Most of those jobs have gone, and they're not coming back. This is mass production, low-skill, factory label, labor. Those jobs are fewer and fewer. They're not coming back, and yet there still is a lag in understanding and accepting the reality of the world, which is, in my simple view, education, 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 as the response to that reality. Spoken like a professor emeritus. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned education, and, and there is a, a struggle in the state with that as well right now. Uh, can you speak to that also? If, if education is what we need, um, there's certainly a current impetus for the state to drive towards charters, drive towards vouchers. Yeah. Is that an Indiana way to go? 
Well, it's a way Indiana's trying to go, but let me start just with the fundamental statement that we need more education. And in some ways, I don't care a whole lot what kind of education it is, just so there's a heck of a lot more of it at every level. We need preschool education. We still don't have that. Every kid in Indiana ought to have free preschool education. And we're still lollygagging around. The General Assembly still refuses to pull the trigger and do what is so obvious and so essential with preschool education. All the way through university education. We just need more of it. Now, what kind? There we get into differences. I personally am not at all in favor of charter schools. I think uh, we built a great public school system in this country in the 1830s and 40s in Indiana. We started, uh, and it's not perfect. In fact, there are lots of imperfections in our public school systems, but uh, I don't think the charter schools are the answer to the question. Last week I was uh, at a reception that you were speaking at at the Lilly Library at Indiana University here in Bloomington, and you said, quote, this state, meaning Indiana, is far more important than people understand, close quote. How so? Well, there's a tendency for us to be very sophisticated and very global. You know, we, we, uh, we're just citizens of the world. But... I agree with Kurt Vonnegut on so many things. He's one of my favorite Hoosiers. Kurt Vonnegut wrote at one point, don't, don't throw up in the open the window and make love to the world. You need a particular place. You need a specific place to understand, to love or not to love. And um, in this globalized world where everything is flat and the same, um, it turns out, I believe, that that's not true that the states are different, that the communities are different, and that they remain very, very important. Indiana as a state is important for the political policy issues, and we could go on, we just talked about education, about economic investment. Those are critically important issues for the state of Indiana and for Hoosier voters and policymakers. But there are all sorts of other ways in which this state deserves more attention one of the downsides of our current situation is that the, um, the change in newspaper reporting in particular means that we have left less coverage of what's happening in the State House. Um, our newspapers used to have reporters assigned to cover the State House. The newspapers in Bloomington, in other towns across the state, sent reporters to Indianapolis. They can't do that anymore. So it's a little bit harder. In fact, I think it's a lot harder to know what some of the boys some of the bozos sometimes are doing in the General Assembly. That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks to Jim Madison for speaking with us on Interchange. Madison's book, Hoosiers, A New History of Indiana, was recently published by Indiana University Press. Thanks also to Trish Curley for joining me in the host chair tonight. Next week on Interchange, we'll offer a follow-up to the September 16 interview with State Forester John Seifert about logging in the state forest. To offer a counter-argument to the state's timber practices, we'll be joined in the studio by Mike Lertzema of the Indiana Forest Alliance. We'll also try to dig into that science of forestry that Director Seifert was fond of referring to in our interview as guiding the practices of the divisions of foresters. Claims on the forest next Tuesday on Interchange. Our board engineer for Interchange is Jonathan Richardson. I'm the producer of Interchange. Executive producer is Allison Bektesh. Our original theme music is by Jamil Effiam. The Jazz Menagerie is up next. Until next time, I'm Doug Storm. And I'm Trish Curley. Thanks for joining us on Interchange on WFHB. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Written and produced entirely by volunteers working in the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Interchange fosters unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Comments, suggestions, and program ideas may be sent directly to the Interchange staff. The email address is news at wfhb.org. That address once again is news at wfhb.org.
girls and caterpillar tractors in the sand The ukulele man, the fireworks this 4th of July night ride home I love the girl beside me, we love the